A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, estimating the mortality associated with the COVID-19 pandemic and the lack of diversity in UK academia. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. This week, a team of researchers working with the World Health Organization have published a paper in Nature that has used statistical modelling to estimate the number of excess deaths associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. Someone who has written extensively about this topic is Nature's Richard Van Norden, who joins me to talk about it. Richard, hi. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Ben. Richard, let's get up to speed quickly before we unpack the actual paper then what do we mean when we talk about excess deaths in this context quite simply we mean how many deaths would you expect to see in the world in a normal year and how many deaths have you actually seen on top of that and the extra death is the excess death so what these who researchers have done is tried to tot up all the excess deaths that there were in 2020 and 2021 above what you'd expect to see and they've said, well, this is probably because of the pandemic. And this could be deaths directly because of an infection of COVID-19, but it could be any deaths associated with the disruption of the pandemic. For example, if someone couldn't get cancer screening because health services were disrupted and they subsequently died earlier than you'd expect, that would count as one of these excess deaths. And before we talk about the actual hard numbers from this paper, Richard, why is this a useful metric for researchers? So in general terms, excess deaths tells you if there's been an unexpected spike of mortality. And that's what we're finding has happened. The WHO researchers say there's been an extra spike of about 15 million deaths over those two years. Now, as you look at the number of reported official COVID-19 deaths over those years, it was five and a half million. And there's quite a discrepancy then between the two. What might be at the root cause of that? Well, first of all, even among rich countries that think they're recording everything, they don't always record deaths by COVID-19 in the same way. And in those sort of frantic first few months of the pandemic in many countries, many deaths occurred that may not have been correctly attributed to COVID-19. And in many countries around the world, 
deaths are not recorded at all. And so we will have missed a huge number of deaths and also a number of COVID-19 deaths. They just won't be there in the official statistics. And in this paper, then, the team have made estimates of these excess deaths for 2020 and 2021 at around 4.5 and 10.4 million, respectively. What are some of the other key headlines from this research? Well, one of the big headlines is that this suggests that COVID was the biggest killer around the world in 2021, bigger than coronary heart disease, which is ordinarily the largest cause of death. So that's pretty striking. But one of the main things to come out of this modelling estimation exercise is that if you look at the official numbers, the high income countries seem to have been the most affected by COVID. But if you look at this modelling and these estimates, it suggests that middle and lower middle income countries were harder hit than the highest, or at least equally as affected. That's a really big takeaway because some people have suggested there's a bit of a mystery and that we weren't seeing these deaths being reported from lower middle income countries. Well, probably these countries were hit just as hard. We just didn't hear about all the deaths that were going on. And obviously in this work, they've made a lot of estimates. And I guess this has to be one of the flaws to this metric, right? It's only as good as the data that can be fed in. Right. So most countries around the world just don't report deaths, full stop. So by some estimates, around 40% of the deaths around the world just go completely unrecorded. In fact, the whole business of estimating mortality is an estimate. And it's normally done sort of three or four years later. Maybe surveys and censuses, you just ask people, has there been a death in your family in the last few years? They can help fill in what is missed by the official records. Here we're asking for much more sort of real-time estimates. So what the researchers had to do in many, many countries that don't record deaths, they just had to model it. They looked at the characteristics of those countries For instance, the reported COVID-19 death rate that we know about, how many cases we know about, what restrictions those countries put in, what the prevalence is of other diseases like diabetes or cardiovascular disease in those countries, all kinds of factors that it seems from the data we do know correlate quite well with recorded COVID deaths and excess deaths. And then they simply said, well, assuming that these other countries to which we have no data behave the same way, this is the burden of mortality that we'd expect to see. So it it is only a modelling exercise, and it is a very crude and and rough one. I talked about 15 million deaths, but the uncertainty intervals around this is very wide, anything between 13 and 16 and a half million. The other problem is that even for the rich countries, we have all the data every month they record their deaths. You're estimating this weird idea of how many deaths would you expect And that means you've got to guess at if past trends from 2019, 2018 continued, what deaths would you have expected to see? And this is a tricky modelling exercise in itself. And that just adds further uncertainty to the estimates here. So if this is an estimation exercise, a modelling exercise with a variety of moving parts, as you've described there, what's the value of it then? I mean, what have researchers told you about that? So the value of it is, first of all, just observing that we've seen way more deaths than the official recorded numbers. So this pandemic just has had a much bigger impact than you would know if you just looked at the official figures. And secondly, the value is that these countries that we didn't hear much about, they were hit hard as well, probably. And you would miss that if you insisted that because we can never know the real number, 
let's just not embark on this exercise. So it's kind of, if we don't try this at all, we won't even have an idea of the burden of COVID-19. Now, Richard, it is worth pointing out that this isn't the only attempt to measure excess deaths, but it seems like this latest attempt has offered some new insights. But of course, the pandemic is still ongoing. And sadly, there is the real possibility that another one will come along. This isn't the last pandemic that we're going to see. What lessons have people said can be learned from exercises like this to prepare for the next whatever it may be? So one of the lessons is how difficult it is to do this, which shows that we need to improve systems for tracking mortality and disease in general. And demographers knew that many deaths around the world are never captured or recorded. But this pandemic has really underlined how little we know. There's a pandemic treaty that the WHO is preparing to sort of strengthen our resilience to future pandemics. And people told us that this really boring but vital point of creating better mortality recording systems has got to be part of this. The other thing that people said is, of course, that the impact of the pandemic is not just on mortality, but also its burdens on the health of survivors. And that is an even harder exercise. And it's just sort of showing how unprepared, again, countries were to deal with the burden of this pandemic. Nature's Richard Van Norden there. For more on this paper, look out for links in the show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing how the leaky pipeline in academia affects some communities more than others. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights. Read this week by Dan Fox. Exceptionally well-preserved fossils of the armoured dinosaur Zool Crurivastator have revealed that their bony tail clubs likely evolved to battle rivals from the same species instead of predators. Ankylosaurid dinosaurs like Zool had stiff tails ending in massive bony knobs, which were long thought to be defensive weapons for warding off tyrannosaurs and other predators. But today's most impressive animal weapons, like antlers in the deer family, are used mainly for battles with members of the same species over mates. Now, researchers are arguing that the same is true for tail clubs, as juveniles, theoretically the most vulnerable to predators, don't have clubs. The team have also presented an example of preserved Zulcrovistator skin pitted with battle scars that they say could only be caused by a rival's tail. Confirmation that these ancient creatures engaged in ritualised combat for social dominance would imply a rich and complex social world. If you only caught the tail end of that research, don't worry, you can read it in full in Biology Letters. A pair of 11,000-year-old carved panels uncovered in Turkey appear to be the earliest known portrayal of a narrative scene. The carvings were found on the side of a limestone bench at an excavation at the Cybirch archaeological site. The right panel features a male facing forwards, its shape protruding from the flat surface. The individual is flanked on each side by a leopard gazing towards it. In the left panel, another male figure holds a snake or rattle while approaching a bull. Because the panels sit side by side and portray similar themes, people encountering dangerous animals, they probably represent a progressing scene from a story. The researcher behind this discovery says that these works are the first known examples of an extended narrative. If that story has you gripped, read the research in full, in antiquity.
Next up on the show, the lack of ethnic diversity in academia. You may be familiar with the concept of the leaky pipeline in academia. This describes the gradual loss of people at every stage of academia due to the environment being less than hospitable. Few people become postdocs and fewer still become professors, despite excellent performance. Well, if the pipeline is leaky for some people, it appears to be pouring for others, as a new series of Nature Features is diving into by gathering data on how ethnically diverse or not academia really is. The first of the features is focused on the UK and shows that people from black, Bangladeshi and Pakistani communities are vastly underrepresented in science compared to the general population in the UK. And it's not for lack of attainment. Whilst 8% of science undergraduates in the UK are black, only 0.6% are professors. To get a sense of the problem, especially for early career researchers, I reached out to Maruk Shamim, a PhD student in immunology and an advocate for equity, diversity and inclusion at the University of Sheffield. I started by asking her about her own experience with a lack of diversity in academia as a Kashmiri woman and an early career researcher. Throughout my undergrad, I wouldn't see many female lecturers, never mind South Asian lecturers. And when it came to certain case studies or just understanding different topics, it always came from a very skewed perspective. And so we would talk about certain things and I would think, well, how does that affect someone of my genetic background or people from certain countries that aren't as represented here? And so you don't feel represented in general with the people that are teaching you or that you're learning from, but even from the things that you're being taught. And it kind of makes you feel excluded ever so slightly. And I've realized that more within my postgraduate degree when I would talk about things or even say, oh, I don't need to really take Easter off. I have my own religious holidays and having to explain what that meant. It ends up being a burden without people realizing. And it's a burden that you have to take on in educating people rather than people taking that initiative to understand maybe why you're not eating for this month of Ramadan because you have to take time to explain that to people. So it it has become a burden ever so slightly, unfortunately. And so the feature this week in nature is showing that people, especially from certain backgrounds, are leaving or prevented from progressing in academia. Do you have any thoughts as to why this might be? It's a very interesting question. And I think one of the reasons why we don't understand it is that the data doesn't really exist for it, first of all. So I don't think I can definitively answer. But from talking to my friends who come from these backgrounds, A lot of the people don't see how they can find themselves fitting into research or fitting into higher levels of academia. They don't see it, so they don't think that it's attainable. A lot of people don't actually understand what research is. I didn't know that a PhD could be funded until someone told me. This is information that is very broadly available to a lot of people. However, if you're not really exposed to it at a very young age or throughout your undergrad even, you don't even know those options exist for you. Lower income schools, for example, just don't have this information disseminated out to you. You don't have as many career fairs. You don't have as many people coming into your schools and telling you, hey, did you know that there are more careers than just being a doctor or a lawyer, Um, which is quite sad. And I think 
a lot of people don't seem to go for these careers because they genuinely don't know they exist or don't know how they can fit into them with their lifestyles. And so one thing that's touched on in the feature is that certain ethnic groups tend to have lower household incomes. And so this may sway students to not do academia because it's not the most financially stable and secure job. Do you think this is a factor? Yes. You talk to any academic and there's so much stress with constantly applying for grants and the instability of jobs. And especially for me and a lot of the people I know is when your family are immigrants, the idea is you will support them in some way. And so having a career where it might take 20 or 30 years for you to then have some job stability or be able to then provide financially for them isn't something that is doable for a lot of first generation immigrants. And so for you then personally, knowing some of these challenges that are within academia, what made you decide to pursue it anyway? It's going to sound incredibly cheesy, but I chose it because I loved it. And I don't think that just because there aren't many people who look like me, I should be afraid to do it. I think that's the complete opposite. I'd love to be part of that representation. And it's been very difficult for me to have to explain certain things that I don't think I have to or should be part of my job. But if it's an uphill battle for me, maybe it'll be a tiny bit easier for other people. I've had so many other people who are in much earlier stages of their career or even their degrees who've come up to me and asked me how I've got to the position I'm in so far. But it's great to be able to kind of feed that knowledge and information back to them. I'm not going to let the fact that science might be slightly behind not let me do what I love. But that sort of representation that you were doing and could have been there for you would make things potentially easier for people to be a part of academia. I 100% agree. Yes, I've had amazing, amazing mentors. And they've been women, men through many different stages of their career who have either been part of the minority or haven't at all. But it's still so invaluable to be able to talk to them and understand why they're advocates and how they are making changes in their small labs or part of their larger organizations to enforce change. And so that's quite hopeful. And I think the fact that I haven't had or haven't had the ability to see as much representation hasn't meant that I haven't had amazing mentors and amazing advocates who really do want me to do well. Well, speaking of these sort of changes, what, to your mind, are the things that we can do to improve things? I think, first of all, there needs to be data collected on understanding what background people come from, what difficulties they've had. I think gathering that data and understanding where these researchers end up really is invaluable to know where we may be lacking. And then I think having open forums is just needed more in general, whether that be in academia and industry, where you have early career researchers who are able to voice out areas that they think want or need improving, and that should be backed up by senior voices. I also think having programs which genuinely promote active change 
is needed, whether that be mentorship schemes or scholarship schemes or making applications blind, all these little things that really do add up to ensure that you're making the process as fair as possible and also supporting students who just might not have privileges that other people have had. And they don't necessarily have to be huge groundbreaking things that, you know, topple society in any way, but small, very actionable changes matter. And you can see them making incredible change. That was Maruk Shamim from the University of Sheffield in the UK. To find out more about this topic and how it affects every stage of academia, check out the feature in the show notes. And be sure to check back for more in the future. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we talk about a couple of articles that have appeared in the Nature Briefing. Nick, why don't you go first this week? What have you got? Well, Ben, this week I've been looking into a story about AI. I was reading this in Nature. So you may be familiar with GPT-3, which is this sort of language-based program. Well, there's a new version of it called ChatGPT, which is available freely. And some people worry it could spell the end of the essay. Yeah, ChatGPT, Nick, this has been all over the internet over the past few weeks and what you give it a short prompt and it'll give you a long and seemingly quite eloquent response to it and i've seen things like you know gym schedules i've seen things like computer programs all sorts of things and there are a lot of people who are quite worried about this and it seems like that one of the things that people are concerned about then maybe is essays is is that right yeah that's exactly right so if you cast your mind way back to undergraduate you may remember being tested by being given an essay to write and it would have like a question at the start like tell me about this topic and use this or something like that and those are the exact sort of things you can put into chat gpt and it will spit out a response so the concern is the students can just use this tool which is currently free and just get it to write essays for them so one person who was interviewed for this article Lillian Edwards who studies law innovation society at Newcastle University said that at the moment it's looking a lot like the end of essays as an assignment for education I mean there are some students who are sort of punching the air right now but I guess that does change things significantly and so this system hasn't been out in the wild that long but i guess you know potentially there already could be essays that are being created by it without anyone knowing how would you go about sort of checking to see if something's been written by an ai or whether it's been written by a human well that's the thing as these tools get more and more sophisticated it's much harder to determine who is writing it and so gpt3 what chat gpt is based on tended to write answers were a bit more cold and computer-like whereas chat gpt as the name suggests is a bit more chatty so it sounds a little bit more casual and as if a human is writing it so in order to check for it it is going to be really difficult there are a few flaws in what chat gpt creates so it may say things that are factually incorrect it is just using a lot of text that is found from the web to come up with associations which may not necessarily actually be true and for instance uh, i asked it when i was playing around with it before to write a new story with me with some quotes and it had just manufactured some quotes the people were real people who were real experts in the field i asked it to write about but the quotes were completely made up so 
There are factual inaccuracies that it can maybe push out, which is a way that you could potentially detect it. But also not everyone is convinced that this really is a game changer. Really? Why is that then? Well, the reason for this is that you could have done a version of this for a very long time. So SA mills have existed for years. And this is where you basically pay someone some money and they pump out an essay for you. So if students really wanted to get an essay that was a passing grade or whatever grade they wanted there were ways in which they could do this and the other thing as well is maybe we need to shift what we're asking students to do so some people who interviewed for the article said that instead of asking students just simply write about a topic we need to prioritize getting them to think about it like ask critical thinking or reasoning which is something that chat gpt can't really do that well and may actually be better for the student to sort of engage those critical faculties so it may be then that the essay as we know it isn't quite done for just yet perhaps not and the other thing is that this tool may not be free forever so there was a tweet from the ceo of OpenAI, who are the people who created this chat gpt saying that it's using a heck of a lot of computing resources so they're gonna have to figure out a way to monetize it at some point and Students may well balk at paying quite a lot of money to use a tool like this, and it may be cheaper to just actually go learn some stuff. (laughs) Well, an interesting story, Nick, and I'm sure one that's going to run and run for a while. For my story this week, well, it's something that I've been following myself, actually, for several weeks, and it's a story that I read about in Nature, and it's a space story, and it's all about NASA's Orion spacecraft, the capsule part of which arrived safely back on Earth after going to the moon and back, and in fact, it did so 50 years to the day that humans last walked on the moon as part of the Apollo 17 mission, so really nice kind of alignment of the stars there, I suppose. (laughs) Well, I do like that, and this is part of the Artemis 1 mission. Right. So what's it been up to since the launch? Yeah, absolutely right, Nick. So the Orion spacecraft was sitting on top of a giant rocket, which launched back in November. And you may remember from the podcast a few weeks ago, I got up super early to watch along with the launch with our colleague Alex Witsey. And shortly after we recorded our chat, the spacecraft, the Orion spacecraft, did some maneuvers and, you know, orientated itself and flew off to the moon. And what's happened since then is this uncrewed mission then has been orbiting the moon. And and in fact, it set a distance record of over 430,000 kilometres away from Earth. So that's the furthest that any potentially crewed spacecraft has been from Earth. But it made its way back after a sort of three weeks, a 2.2 million kilometre trip. So, you know, a fair distance, I would say. But all that would have been for naught if the very last part of the mission, which is re-enter Earth's atmosphere and land kind of serenely in the ocean, hadn't gone to plan, right? And thankfully... It did. And this is a very, very difficult thing to do indeed. And so the idea of doing this is to one day take human beings back to the moon. So I guess this is a big success. Yeah, it does seem like a big success, Nick. And I think everyone was delighted that this has happened. And actually, in a strange way, it's now right, let's get back to work. And so what's happened in this instance as well is they were doing a lot of tests here. Obviously, this is a new spacecraft. And so when it returned to Earth, the capsule portion of this spacecraft kind of separated away right and the spacecraft bit kind of burnt up in the atmosphere and and the capsule had to slow down from 40,000 kilometers an hour down to 32 kilometers an hour which is a heck of a thing as you might imagine and then you know slowly glide down as a parachute to splash down into the ocean and the brunt of this kind of re-entry was done by the orion's heat shield right which endured temperatures of around 2,800 degrees celsius right so incredibly hot 
And it's made of the same stuff that was used during the Apollo program, but it's been applied in a different way. And the capsule also came back in a different way to the Apollo missions. In this case, what the Orion capsule did was it did this kind of skipping maneuver, almost like a stone skipping on a pond right through the atmosphere. And this hasn't been tried before on a crude or potentially crude, you know, space mission, right? And what it allows NASA to do is really closely pinpoint where it's going to land on Earth. And it does a bunch of other things as well, like hopefully it will subject astronauts to less G-forces, things like that. But it really was a bit of a test. And it seemed that all went well, Nick. It splashed down off the coast of Mexico, less than 10 kilometers away from a waiting US Navy ship, right? So that's gone pretty well. And now the next steps to Artemis 2 begin. And so what are those next steps? And how soon are people going to be on the moon again? Yeah, well, that's a huge question, Nick. I mean, the stage is now set for the Artemis 2 mission in 2024. But what needs to happen is obviously they need to do a bunch of tests of what's come back. So some time will be needed, obviously, to test parts of the capsule that will be included in Artemis 2 to make sure they're working okay, particularly things like the flight computers, which are actually being reused from this mission to the next mission. That was a decision made a long time ago to save money. And there are a bunch of things in the capsule as well, like radiation sensors and so forth. So they need to test those to see what radiation levels were like in the capsule. So they want to make things as safe as they possibly can for the next mission, which... As I say, 2024 is the plan, and that is going to be with people. It's going to be a crewed mission, the same sort of setup. So the rocket will take off, the Orion spacecraft will go around the moon, and then it will arrive back. And then if that goes well, I mean, they're talking 2025 for maybe landing on the moon. But obviously, that's that's a long old way away, Nick. Well, it, it certainly seems to be getting closer every day, so I'll be keeping an eye out on that. Thanks, Ben. And listeners, for more details on the stories we discussed and where to sign up for the Nature Briefing to get more like them delivered straight to your inbox, check out the show notes for some links. And that's all for this week. But keep your ears out in seven days' time for next week's instalment of the Nature Podcast. It'll be our last regular show of the year. And as always, we'll be going out on a festive note. So there'll be hijinks, there'll be seasonal songs, there'll be all the stuff you expect from us at this time of year. So look out for that. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter, we're at Nature Podcast, or you can send an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.